Across the microphone is the Mr. Arthur C. Clarke, the man described by a good number of critics, highly respected critics, as the colossus of science fiction. It'd be hard to enumerate the various facets uh, of Mr. Clarke's, Mr. Clarke's interests, so many. He's the past president of British Interplanetary Society, uh, lectures, skin diver, globetrotter, explorer, but perhaps over and above that, observer of the, of the human comedy that is. Mr. Clarke, I feel very guilty during this interview to be, because I know very little of science fiction of your work, and uh, this is a sign of my particular benightedness, because I know that you are a highly respected man in this field, sir. Now, what is the British Interplanetary Society, which you were past president? Well, the British Interplanetary Society, which was started in 1933, was an organization that tried to convince people there was something in this space nonsense. And of course, no one took us seriously until about, well, after the Second World War when the V-2 started arriving, and still more after the satellites and Sputniks. It was a scientific society, and it still is. It's uh, quite a large one now, about three or four thousand members. It is, in fact, the largest organization in the world devoted specifically to space problems. So this group, which was thought uh, scientifically avant-gardish, has now become accepted as just a... Indeed, almost old-fashioned. <laughs> old-fashioned. You touch, I, I understand from reading some of the reviews very rapidly here, and I know that I've got to atone for this very soon. For my own sake, read your works. Childhood's End is considered one of your finest science fiction uh, books. Yes, it, it is generally, and uh, um, it has uh, had an extraordinarily wide acceptance, uh, often among people who say almost uh, proudly, well, I've never read any other science fiction, but I like, I think Childhood's End is quite a remarkable book. Uh, this happens a lot, and incidentally, last year I sold it to Hollywood. I don't know what they're going to make of it. Well, the question arises, you, the writer of science fiction, you yourself are a physicist, do you not, sir? Well, I took my degree at uh, King's College London in physics and mathematics. I've never done any scientific research, but I did become a scientific editor of a, a leading physics journal, and uh, that I did for a couple of years until I found that my writing was earning more than my editing, and so I gave up the editing. Now, in the matter of, before we touch upon the number of books you've written, various ones like The City and the Stars and Earthlight, as well as uh, Childhood's End and some of the nonfiction works, and the the book, The Deep Range. But what about uh, the writer of science fiction today? Is it true that he can, he can make more comment, more pungent comment about our society and the world than, say, a writer of conventional fiction? That's very true, and that's one of the attractions of science fiction. And, in fact, it has been for many years. If you go, need many centuries, if you look back in the history of literature, you'll see a lot of writers like uh, Defoe, Dean Swift, used media which we would now call science fiction. Gulliver's Travels, for example, is an, is an early form of science fiction. And they were able to poke fun at their societies and satirize conditions, political, religious, moral, in, in a way which was very effective and also is much safer for the writer than if he took an obviously recognizable portrait of his own society. And this is happening right now, and it has happened all through the last decade. For instance, some of the most trenchant criticism of certain trends in American uh, politics in the last few years, uh, I'm thinking of a certain dead yes, senator, uh, appeared in some of the science fiction stories which extrapolated these trends and showed what they might lead to. And in short, this is beyond censorship because uh, uh, a man cannot condemn your writing since you deal with a society that is not here. Exactly. In fact, I don't, th I don't think there's a single theme which hasn't appeared in science fiction. I mean, the themes which couldn't possibly be touched in mainstream literature have been touched on and examined 
more or less dispassionately in science fiction. Well, with all this talk today of, of uh, man and other planets, man and other spheres, and still not having solved so many of the problems of this sphere, uh, the question comes up, uh, don't your books sometimes become dated? That is, you speak of some uh, something that seems so fantastic, yet becomes real, suddenly real. That's true, but then science fiction has uh, two aspects. First, you might say there's a technological aspect. There's a story which is mainly concerned with some invention or discovery and its effects on people. Well, that's a, that kind of story can easily become dated. Let me give an example. Uh, one of my first novels, uh, Prelude to Space, was about the launching of the first spaceship to the moon. And I wrote that, I think, in 1947, and I put it about 30 years ahead at that time. Well, now, since I wrote that story, almost half the things I've described have taken place, and uh, there have been different changes of emphasis. For example, I never imagined when I wrote this story that Russia was going to play the leading part in space exploration, as she has and is going to do. And uh, there are certain shifts of technical emphasis. Well, these things change and do, in a way, date a story. But the other aspects, which might, you might say the philosophical aspects of stories, uh, discussing um, future, they don't necessarily come out of date. For instance, many of Wells's stories, indeed many of Verne's stories, there are lots of ideas in them which are still quite valid now. And here, here then, the, uh, the science uh, fiction writer is something of a prophet, is he not? He can be a prophet, though, again, I should stress that he doesn't set out to be a prophet. Like all writers, he should set out to entertain and uh, make people think, uh, sort of stretch their imaginations. And um, sometimes he does prophesy, but that is accidental. You say he sets out to entertain. At the same time, you would not describe science fiction as escape literature, would uh, you? No, on the contrary. This is a common canard, which I'd like to refute, if one does refute a canard. <laughs> um, people, critics who often have never read any of it, uh, say, well, science fiction is escapist. Well, this is absolute nonsense. In fact, I, at the moment, I've got an editorial of John Campbell's in front of me. Campbell is the editor of Astounding Science Fiction, which, despite its title, is about the, one of the most literate uh, magazines of fiction going. And he says how annoyed he's been with people who call science fiction escape literature, because he said it's not, and it never has been. And, in fact, he says, uh, science fiction is just about the only non-escape literature available to the general public today. And then he goes on to criticize the soft, almost formless, nearly pointless stories found in the mass circulation magazines, a wonderful retreat from reality. And uh, he goes on to say that uh, science fiction is concerned, it's, uh, concerned with real things that are happening right now and their effects on society. Far, you mean far, far closer to us, to our lives, and to our feelings Quite. than, say, a man of the gray flannel suit type oh, of book. Well, that's the kind of reality, but the kind of escapism is the, is the private eye, the historical ah, yes. novel. Uh, you <laughs> name it, they're all over the place. Uh, that is fantasy. Forever Amber type. That is pure fantasy, and, yes. Fantasy, though, you mean allegedly dealing with humans, dealing with cardboards, whereas right. you seemingly dealing with unrealistic... Uh, Quite. Evil. Deal much, come much closer to us. And for this reason, as a matter of fact, there's been a re uh, quite a slump in science fiction because a lot of people went into it thinking that it was escape, and they suddenly found to their horror that it isn't. In fact, uh, there's a quote from Campbell's editorial again. There's probably nothing is so deeply disturbing as to have a nice, safe fantasy, wake up, stretch immense muscles, yawn, and start looking around, all on its own and not controlled by your imagination anymore. And so he's referring to what's happened to atomic power and space travel, which a lot of people thought were pleasant fantasies they could play with, and they suddenly realize these are the most real things in our world. Here's a case of uh, a man's imagination suddenly uh, leading to uh, a pavement reality. Yes. Uh, what about uh, requisites for science fiction writers? You yourself are a scientist. Uh, 
You mentioned something earlier. We I brought up the name of Ray Bradbury, a noted writer of what I yes. thought was science fiction. You called it fantasy. Well, now, Ray is a very fine writer, but he does not write science fiction. He writes a type of fantasy which has been strongly influenced by science fiction themes. Uh, he's a difficult to define, and I probably might say that all good writers are probably difficult to define, but he is not on the mainstream of science fiction. He's been affected, often negatively affected. In other words, he dislikes many of these uh, science fiction ideas, and his stories are, are against, are anti-scientific in some ways. I see. You mentioned something, uh, a negative viewpoint. Uh, there, there is something here in the review of your book, Childhood's End, uh, by William Du Bois, or Dubois of the New York Times. He writes of you, Arthur Clarke. He is equally at home in the outer galaxies and the troubled psyche of modern man. And if he seems to agree with Norman Cousins that modern man is rather obsolete, his pity for that same homo sapiens never wavers. When he rings his curtain down, man as we know him today is as dead as all man's pathetic schemes for self-destruction. But no one can escape the conviction that the phoenix just risen from the ashes is destined for higher things. Does this mean, sir, that you're an optimist? Yes, fundamentally I am, and I've uh, expressed this in most of my books uh, about man going out and uh, colonizing, uh, conquering and colonizing space, at least the nearer planets of this sun, and setting up new societies, new civilizations there, which may far exceed anything on this planet. And I, I have stressed the point that what we are seeing now is a possibly a new renaissance. This is the main theme, incidentally, of my next book, The Challenge of the Spaceship, uh, deliberately Toynbee in a title, which is a collection of my essays and articles from Holiday and Harper's and elsewhere, discussing the impact, largely the political and social and philosophical and religious impact uh, of, of space travel on human society. And I think it's going to be, on, on the whole, overwhelmingly to the good. You feel that uh, through man's uh, inventiveness, man's advance scientifically, that man, uh, in a human sense, too, can sociologically or socially? Yes, because uh, it's going to give us a much more accurate perspective. When we can see this Earth of ours as it really is, a rather small pebble floating among the stars, then many of our present uh, tribal squabbles will become as, appear as ridiculous as they are. Tribal squabbles? Yes. Okay. That's all they are now. In contrast to, the, to, to what awaits us. In contrast here. to the cosmos. I'm thinking of something, I speak of a cosmos, and I think of big things. This is wandering for a moment. Something you mentioned earlier uh, about members of the non-human world. You speak of man's, uh, our, our treatment of the whale today, the, the big fish. <laughs> now, you spoke of the whale becoming, uh, you, spe you, you speak of the whale farm being something of the future. Would yes, well, I'm rather, this may seem a bit of a digression, but it's really all part of the same pattern. I've got very interested in the sea, and so I've spent most of my time underwater. I've done two expeditions now, one to the Great Barrier Reef of Australia and another one to Ceylon, where, in fact, I now live in Colombo. And uh, you're there you're going to an alien world and meeting strange creatures, as we will do out in space, which is probably the reason why I'm interested in it. And uh, I got interested in whales partly because of this and partly because I suppose Moby Dick had a greater impact on me than any other novel I've ever read. And I did a book called The Deep Range, which is about whale ranching, whale farming, uh, which is a definitely a possibility of the near future. And I was amused to see a long article in the Wall Street Journal touching on it only yesterday. I mean, these, things, these ideas are getting around. We are 
still, as far as the sea is concerned, in the stage that primitive man was when he was a hunter before he'd invented agriculture. We go out and hunt these creatures, not, not only whales but fish. We haven't yet started to farm the sea. And this is a matter of desperate necessity as our population increases. And these things will be done, I believe, in the near future. Um, forms of agriculture on the sea, growing crops and conserving, breeding, and uh, treating the animals, fish and whales, of the sea as we treat animals on land. I mean, there are food values. There are food the values. And the seaweed. And yes. But I'm also not only concerned with the food values. As far as whales are concerned, these are fascinating beasts. Uh, probably the most, uh, the second or third most intelligent animals on the earth. They're somewhere between the chimpanzee and the dog in their intelligence. They're cattle, of course, and they can be certainly controlled like cattle. They have a language of their own. We've recorded it. When I say they can communicate by sounds, and we can uh, definitely herd them if we wish to. And um, well, uh, I'm interested in the conservant, the conservancy angle too. I mean, I'd like to see these creatures preserved, not just hunted to extinction. At the moment, the whale, you feel, is going the way of the buffalo. Well, there's a danger of that, and there are attempts now to uh, cut down the, the slaughter by international agreement, but... Uh, there's something else you're touching upon here that intrigues me, the, uh, your attitude toward the whale. It's beyond the attitude of man toward beast here. Uh, I think this may be connected with, with, with your reference, your passing reference to Moby Dick being the book that most... Is there a, a moral aspect to it here somewhere that intrigued you? Oh, yes. Melville? Yes, very much. In fact... Um, I rather think I let it get out of control in uh, <laughs> the deep range, uh, possibly because of the influence of Buddhism on my thinking. I live in a Buddhist community. All my friends and neighbors are Buddhists in Ceylon. And uh, in fact, in the, the deep range, I, did, I ended up the book with the whole whale uh, slaughtering campaign being stopped by the Buddhist hierarchy. And now you can only, look, you can only uh, conserve the whales, not allowed to kill them anymore. <laughs> this is probably a little bit uh, impractical, but that's the way I feel about it. I, I'm, let, let's see, I'm, I'm probably a moral vegetarian, even though, I, in fact, I hate vegetables and only eat <laughs> meat when I can get it. <laughs> but spiritually, you're a vegetarian. I'm a spiritual vegetarian. As much as Shaw was physically. Yes, quite. Well, I love a nice steak, <laughs> whether it's a whale steak or a cow steak. Mr. Clark, uh, your interests are so varied and so many. I know there are uh, so many facets of your, of your, of your uh, way of thinking we'd like to delve into. Perhaps uh, an all-inclusive question. This is not to wind up this conversation. I'm just uh, reaching out because I know so little of your writings. I'd like to know more. Your credo as a scientist, as a novelist, as a writer of science fiction, as an adventurer, uh, a sociologist, too. What, what about... Uh, oh, before we touch that. Oh, your credo, and then perhaps we'll touch upon space travel. Well, I suppose space travel is really part of my credo. Uh, I adopt the scientific humanist outlook. Um, I don't, I'm a complete agnostic. Uh, I don't uh, have any religious faith, and I believe that it's a few thousand years premature to arrive at any religious faith. We are rather like islanders somewhere in the middle of an enormous ocean on a little island. We've never been off this island. We don't know anything about the great wide world and what's out there, what other races, what other species are there. And it's obviously futile for us to try and speculate about the purpose of the universe and when we don't even know a thing about it. So I think all our religious speculations so far are just ch literally childish. In fact, I have an article in um, Horizon magazine, this new, uh, you know, American Heritage's companion Horizon, on the impact of uh, spaceflight on religion and philosophy. And in the long run, it's going to be pretty overwhelming.
You say that you think we're a couple of thousand years premature in the matter of... Uh, this may a, be an underestimation. Arriving at a faith, an underestimation. Your point is, I'm just trying to... I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand your point. In order for us to have a faith yes. about ourselves and about the universe, we've got to know more about the universe itself. Yes. Well, let me uh, put this perhaps in more concrete terms. Um, you see, the only real... The only certain knowledge we have of the universe and around us has in fact been arrived by scientific methods. I'm using the word science in the widest possible sense. Science, after all, means knowledge. It doesn't necessarily mean technology and test tubes and psychotrons, but it does mean knowledge. And um, in the past, we've seen what an overwhelming effect scientific discoveries have had on philo philosophical and religious ideas. Let me just mention the Copernican Revolution, which simply shattered the theological framework of the Middle Ages. The Darwinian Revolution, which had an equally great impact in fact, a greater one because it affected men personally a hundred years ago. In fact, more recently than that in Tennessee. That's true. <laughs> and uh, now, uh, and about and in this century, the, the Freudian revolution, there's others to come, and space travel is going to be one of them, particularly when, as I think will happen eventually, though perhaps not for a long time, we come up against really superior races. You, you, you feel that, you say superior races, you mean, uh, you have no idea, of course, what form no, uh, these beings will take. But, I mean, when you look out at the universe, there are 100,000 million suns in this galaxy of ours alone. And if only, say, one in ten has got planets, that may mean that to every single person on this earth, there's somewhere an inhabited world. That's about the number of inhabited worlds in this universe, one to every man, woman, and child on this earth. Well, it seems very unlikely that on many of those there won't be races that would regard us as somewhere back in the Stone Age. I'm curious to this comment. A superior race, as you said. You mean well, I mean morally, uh, intellectually, uh, philosophically, no scientifically, wars, technologically. Well, a superior race cannot have war because war is a self-liquidating activity. Well, you're a man, sir, who, who sees a more than, let us say, a, a conventional... Uh, pavement pounder might see here. You feel then there will be a revolution as far as religious beliefs are concerned? Uh, yes, I think. Sense. I think, in fact, eventually that uh, what we call religious beliefs will cease to be held by intelligent men. But they will have a faith of a sort, you feel? Well, yes. I mean, obviously, you have to have a certain faith. I mean, you have to have a faith that life is worth living. I mean, that's a, in a basic sort of way of faith, and some people haven't got that nowadays. Well, I think, I think that uh, you, uh, Mr. Clark, express a great deal of faith, perhaps, in what is most important of all in the human being and in this destiny. And it's certainly been a, a delight for me to have you as a guest on this program and for w listeners WFMT. And I think we should, I think for all of us, we should brush up on some of your works. Childhood's End is one of your books. Uh, Earthlight is another of your novels. And The Outer Side of no, the, the uh, Other Side of the, the Sky. Other side of the sky. Uh, uh, is this fiction, too? Yes, that was my last collection of short stories. Um, Harcourt Brace are doing all my uh, fiction now, and uh, sometime later this year, they're putting out a big anthology of uh, about 600 pages with um, Childhood's End and Earthlight and about 20 short stories, and Clifton Fadiman is going to do an introduction to this. Are I hope it'll have quite an effect. Perhaps the, the last uh, paragraph of the review, of the New York Times review of Childhood's End, m might... Uh, paint an interesting picture of you here. This review can only hit at the stimulation Mr. Clark's novel offers. Above all, it must be emphasized this is not a gloomy book, despite its holocausts. It is true the invaders from outer space managed to steal the big scenes, but Homo sapiens fights back to the end with resourcefulness and wit. What's more, he rarely allows himself to be upstaged, 
even when he's faced with his own extinction. And perhaps on this note, Mr. Clark, one last word from you. Are we faced with our own extinction? Well, obviously, we are faced with it, uh, but I don't think that it's inevitable. I hope that we will make the wise choice because everybody has agreed that the choice has to be made and that extinction is a possibility of our generation, the first generation of mankind that's ever had this possibility in front of it. And I am optimistic about the outcome. Either to be, either to, to destroy himself or to be perhaps even more noble than ever, is that it? Yes. So the choice is ours. The choice is ours, and it's really a privilege to be born in this age, the most critical in the whole history of mankind. Uh, a bit discomforting, but exciting. Discomforting, but exciting. I remember the old Chinese proverb, may you live in interesting times. Well, there's a rather a Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. Well, that curse has been visited on us, but I don't think it really is a curse. It's a privilege. And it could be a blessing, too. It could be. Well, Mr. Clark, thank you very much for being our enlightening guest. Very enlightening indeed. Thanks a lot. Thank you. I'm glad to be here.